Soul of the Parsha, with Rabbi Nir Menusi. This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Shalom everyone and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We have now arrived at the Parsha Shlach. Shlach means send. And this is the fourth Parsha of the book of uh, Numbers, the book of Bamidbar. And it is the 37th Parsha of the Torah. And our topic for today is what is the role, what is the place of our own voluntary accepting of the Torah and our own identification with the mitzvot, with the commandments. There is a very basic principle in Judaism which is called Na'aseh V'nishma We shall do and we shall hear. First we shall do and then we shall hear. We shall do even before we hear. Hearing means understanding. So to, to do before one hears is really to do without understanding, without identifying. It's a basic central tenet of Judaism that we don't first agree with the commandments and agree with everything in the Torah and understand everything in the Torah. That means hearing it. First we do. We accept the yoke of the commandments. We accept the will of God. We don't expect to understand everything about it or even to agree with everything about it. But we do accept that there is a divine will at work. This is God's word. And so we say that's what the Jewish people said before they accepted the Torah and through which they merited to receive the Torah is they said, we shall do and we shall understand. And many times this is interpreted as meaning that through doing, even doing in a way that appears sometimes senseless or without meaning or without rhyme or reason, without hearing the inner meaning of things, by doing, by jo actively joining in participating in the mitzvot, you thereby gradually acquire certain understanding of it. That is, there is a kind of understanding that can only come after acting. In many, many situations in life, we say, first I want to understand, and then I'll decide if I want to do it or not. But in some things in life, it doesn't work that way, you, won't, you will never understand it unless first you take part in it, an active part in it. So this is the principle of doing and then hearing. But is there room for the opposite direction? For a kind of action, a kind of performing of the mitzvot that comes through the understanding that we can say maybe that there is room for choice, for freedom, to have God loosen the reins for us in some way and let us decide for ourselves and then arrive at the performing aspect of the mitzvot through the understanding. This is actually the situation today for many, many ba'alei tshuva, returnees to Judaism. They first hear at least some of the truth of the Torah and thereby they arrive at performing the mitzvot. They didn't receive a religious education, they don't have a religious superego over their head, all kinds of teachers and rabbis and, and people sort of, uh, uh, you know, telling them nu nu nu, and um, what's the word, it's a good word in English that I don't remember now, and they don't have this, uh, this religious superego uh, that, uh, you know, uh, at work, in, in the back of their head, or in the fore of their head. Um, I don't remember the word they're looking for. They just, they just arrive at the, at, the, at the commandments, at the mitzvot, at God's service, because they like it, because they see the beauty of it, they see the truth of it, they hear the truth of it. So for them, the order would appear to be, first I hear, then I do which is the very opposite of the basic tenet of Judaism, which is first you do, then you hear. So what place is there in our time and age 
as we want to experience the light of redemption and to experience a Torah of redemption, a new Torah, a Torah that's not diasporic in nature, that, that a redeeming, a, re, a redemption Torah, is there such a place for a reversing of the order we shall do and we shall, uh, we shall hear? So that's our question for today. Now, let's uh, remind ourselves what's going on in this parsha. The parsha is, again, it's Shlach or Shlach Lecha. In the previous parsha, we left, finally, Mount Sinai. For over a year, almost a year and a month, or uh, actually a little bit more than a year and a month, the Jewish people, no, a little under a year and a month, they spent at the foot, at the, at the, at the foot steps, uh, that's how you say the foothills, the footsteps of the of Mount Sinai, and uh, they they received the Torah twice. Then the, they built the tabernacle. That was the inauguration of the tabernacle, and of course we had the entire book of Vaikra, the the book of the Leviticus, the the all the instructions for the priests, and then only in the last parasha, what finally did we start moving. And many people think by mistake that it took 40 years to get to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel. Of course, that's not true. It took about five weeks, uh, one week of which was just waiting for Miriam to recover from her leprosy, which was at the end of last parasha. So it, it was really just a four-week uh, hike from Mount Sinai until the border of Eretz Israel, which is where we get to in this parasha. It's very much this time of the year. It's the end of Sivan, that's when they get to Eretz Israel. And then uh, Moshe, Moses sends 12 spies. This is the opening of our parsha. He sends 12 spies. These are the 12 new chieftains or chiefs or captains of the tribes. And they're all sent to for 40 days. They're supposed to go over the land of Israel and see what's it, what, what its state is, how are the military camps, how strong are their armies, where can it be conquered from, and so on. And they go, but when they come back, 10 out of the 12 sin very severely. And this is actually the second big major sin of the desert years. The first was with the golden calf, and the second is this. In both cases, God is very angry, and he wants to destroy the Jewish people, and Moses is asking him for mercy, and, and the mercy is, is given. And so the sin is that they say, they first they report what they are supposed to report, but then they give their opinion, those ten sinning spies. They say it's unconquerable. And then the two good spies, who are Yoshua and Caleb, Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, they try to convince the Jewish people that not to listen to the other ten spies, that it's a good country and it can be conquered. And of course, God forbid that we say that God took us all this way to an unconquerable land and God can do anything and all this, but it doesn't help. All the Jewish people believe the ten sinning spies and then uh, they cry all night. If you, the sages made the calculation, they saw that it was actually the ninth day of Av. If you take 40 days from the 28th day of Sivan, all through Tammuz, you get to the 8th day of Av, and they cried all night. It was the night of Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, the future day of the destruction of both temples. And so it was a kind of cursed day from that day onwards. And, and then they were given the punishment of not entering Eretz Israel because they didn't believe it can be entered. And the entire generation is now <clears throat> punished by remaining in the desert for 40 years until they all pass, pass away. And the new generation that's born in the desert, they will be the ones to enter Eretz Israel. So it's a very pivotal moment. And it didn't take so long to get to Eretz Israel, but now because of this sin, which is taking place in the beginning of this parsha, 
uh, we are we are now punished to remain forty years in the desert, and only a new generation can come in. Um, and then there's another sin that follows on the very next day, which is the ninth of itself, that the same people operating out of guilt feelings, they try to too quickly, too prematurely uh, conquer the, the land. They regret not believing the spies. They regret believing the spies and not believing God. So that then they try to make amends by rushing forward to conquer the land. But now it's too late. Now it's, it's only it's adding another mistake and another sin. Because the day you should have thought of this, of this the day before, you didn't think about it then, now it's too late and they're also punished. This is the sin of the Ma'apilim. Anyway, but we are focusing this year only on the first segment of each parsha, the first Aliyah. And in the first Aliyah, the sin hasn't happened yet. In the first Aliyah, it's just, uh, we're still very optimistic, we're very hopeful. The sin, the spies are still good, they're all righteous, they're all called Anashim. Anashim means people. But um, they say here that it's not just people, it's, it's, a, it's actually a very l- lofty word. It's a, it's a word that honors them, it's a word that says that they were people of high stature, of people of import. And, and that's how they start. They're going to sin in the next Aliyah, in the second Aliyah. But in the first Aliyah, they're all still very good, and they definitely have uh, a good chance of not sinning. It's, it's still uh, still very open. So in this spirit, we want to go into this parsha and try to understand what happened to them, and what exactly the sin was, and what we can learn about this to our own day and age. And again, I said in the very beginning that our topic is something very broad, that we're going to have to see how it connects to this whole story, the concept of, as I said, the kind of freedom to choose the mitzvot, rather than feel that we're just obligated and that's it. How does it all connect? I want to add just one more thing, um, which is that we should have in the background a very basic Hasidic interpretation of the sin of the spies. Usually, it's understood that the spies were had very small faith. They didn't have enough faith in God. They thought they saw the land, they saw that the armies are very strong, they saw that the land was actually populated by giants, they felt very small, and looking through looking at it through rational eyes, they said it's impossible to conquer. There is a Hasek interpretation that sort of flips it around and says, no, 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 they were actually very, very spiritual people. And the reason they didn't believe or didn't want to enter the land of Israel is not because they had small faith, but in a way, the opposite. They said that life in the desert is so lofty, so spiritual. Uh, We don't have to plow the land and sow the seeds and have the crops grow and then uh, harvest them and then prepare the bread. We're just given manna bread from heaven. And we have the clouds of, uh, of uh, Ananea Kavod, the clouds of glory, or the clouds that surrounded the camp, and they, they wash our clothes for us, and they take care of our enemies. Everything is happening through divine miracles. And it's all miraculous. It's a life in which you're just fully, you fully experience God's presence in a way that you will never experience once you enter the land of Israel. So they, they were just, they loved this kind of miraculous kind of life so much, that's why they didn't want to go into the land of Israel. But actually they were mistaken, because God's will is that we don't live in this kind of miracle space, that we, we enter the full, we feel, we experience the full weight of physical reality, including the responsibility that it entails, and that we serve God while plowing the land and sowing the seeds and, and harvesting and reaping and, and doing actual physical work within the regular uh, realm, you know, of human life. And so, it, all I'm saying with this is that we need to bear this in mind. There's two totally different ways of looking at the spies, and it'll help us. 
Now let's try and, and go into the, the deeper levels here and see what they mean and see how it connects to what I said in the introduction. So it's well known, and we spoke about this in previous classes, that one of the uh, descriptions of the Torah in the sages is that the Torah is called Orian Tlitai, which means the threefold Torah. The threefold Torah means that in some ways the Torah divides into three. So there are several explanations for this. Most basic explanation is what is the threefold Torah? It's Torah Nevi'im Ktuvim. The Torah itself, five, five books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and the miscellaneous writings which together form the acronym Tanakh, which is the Bible. So that's the basic explanation for the threefold Torah. Second explanation is that uh, we, we had a class about this when we spoke about Parashat Behar, and we said that there were three instances of the giving of the Torah. That first it was on Mount Sinai, and then again it was repeated in the Tent of Meetings, or the Tabernacle, and the, the third time it was repeated just before entering the land of Israel at the 40th year, on the steps of Moab, Arvot Moab. Another explanation is that just the Torah, not Torah Nevi'im Ktuvim, just the Torah divides into three. How does it divide into three? Until the giving of the Torah, from the giving of the Torah to the end of the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, and then the fifth book of Moses, that's the third part, which is which is unique, because uh, the, the fifth book, Dvarim, it's just Moses re reiterating the story so far in his own words. So we have three books. But there is yet another uh, explanation for why the Torah is called the threefold Torah, and this is actually original to Rabbi Ginsburg. And he says, and it's the most, you know, in a way, it's the most straightforward. There are 54 portions, parashot, in the Torah. And the number 54 divides into three, very elegantly. 54 divided by three is 18. So we can divide the Torah into three equal thirds. And what you get is you get from Bereshit, Genesis, all the way to Mishpatim, in the book of Exodus, that's 18 parashot. And then you have from Truma, which is just, just after Mishpatim, until Beha'alotcha, which is the previous parasha. So we're just, we finished two-thirds of the Torah now, in this time of year. And then the third and final third is from Shlach Lecha, our parasha, all the way to the end. Right? So we have 18 that's the first third, then another 18, together it's 36, and our parasha now is the 37th one, so we're beginning the final third. How does this division make sense? It actually makes beautiful sense. And it makes beautiful sense when you think about the Torah as presenting, let's say, three goals, and each third is a way of arriving at that goal. So the first goal, corresponding to the first third, the first 18 portions of the Torah, is receiving the Torah. All the stories about the first generations, which in a way is like Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah. Being just a good person, being human, is foundation for being a good Jew, uh, serving God. So all the first generations are about just being a person. And then the, the stories of the fathers and the mothers, it's all leading up to the formation of the Jewish people. They're coming out of Egypt. And finally, the last two parashot of the first 18 are Yitro and Mishpatim. That's the actual giving of the Torah. The actual giving of the Torah is described over two parashot. So that's the, that's the goal achieved. The first goal is to receive the Torah, and it's achieved in the 17th and 18th parashot. Beautiful symmetry, and a beautiful division. Immediately afterwards, from Truma onwards, we're dealing with the 
Second goal. What is the second goal? Of course, the building of the tabernacle. The Torah is just the first goal. We, have, we went a long way, millennia, of the, first, the history of mankind, all the way to Egypt, coming out of Egypt, where we received the Torah. And now we have to work on the second goal. Second goal of the second uh, group of 18 Palashat is to build the tabernacle that houses the Torah and that enables the Torah to be performed in this world. But it's still very, very holy and sacred. And all the parashot, starting with Truma, which is the contribution to the building of the tabernacle, the actual building of the tabernacle, and then the, all the details about the sacrifices and the holidays, and everything that has to do with what's done in the tabernacle, that reaches its end in Be'alotcha. Because in the... And so in... In, uh, in in many ways, and then we started moving, started traveling towards where? The Eretz Yisrael. That's in the, the last parasha. And in the final 18 parashot, the tabernacle is barely mentioned. It's barely referred to. There's only a couple of places that the, the details of the sacrifices are reiterated. That's simply because the book of Deuteronomy is all about repeating what has been said before. It's called Mishneh Torah. So the final third, we are basically, the tabernacle is behind us. It's another goal that's achieved. What is the third goal? What are the final 18 parashot all about? Starting with this parasha, Shlach Lecha. The third goal is Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. It's not just receiving the Torah, and it's not just building a tabernacle, which is constructing a whole, you, let's, let's say, call it a sacred life around the Torah. The sacred life is very much belongs to the level of the desert, of the miraculous, of the holy, of God's revealed presence. But as we said before, the ultimate goal of all what the Torah and Judaism is all about the ultimate goal is that we don't just live in this kind of um, miracle space or sacred space, is that we take all the light of the Torah and the light of the tabernacle, which belongs to the first two-thirds, and we take it into the land of Israel, which is symbolic of the earthly realm in general, the realm of physical matter, physical being, actual physical life, straining and working in a non-miraculous, non-sacred space, within the laws of nature, within routine, within the failures of, of uh, human nature, within the constraints of nature. All this is what Eretz Yisrael symbolizes. Eretz Yisrael is a very holy land, it's the holy land. But if you compare the Eretz Yisrael to the desert, it symbolizes the opposite of this kind of holy realm. The desert is a place of constant divine revelation. In the land of Israel, it's called the land, an Eretz. Eretz means Arziut, it's the, it's the realm of earthly matters, earthly things. So, yes, someone is asking, are body corresponds to Eretz Yisrael? Of course, yes. Eretz Israel, Eretz is Arziut, it's the physical realm. In a way, the transition from the desert to Eretz Israel is akin to the soul living in the realm of souls, and then the soul descending and entering a body. In a way, of course, they had bodies in the desert, but relatively speaking, the Jewish people as a whole, and living around the tabernacle and around the divine miracles, it's akin to, it's a bit like souls before they enter the body. The Jewish people is in a way disembodied, or at least not yet embodied. It's out of, of the, its negative body, which is Egypt, but it has not yet entered its rectified body, which is Eretz Israel. So it's now in a disembodied state, so to speak. So entering Eretz Israel, which is what the third, third of the Torah is all about, is, uh, is embodiment. Entering the physical realm and being embodied with everything that embodiment entails. So this is a very interesting way of looking at the Torah, of dividing the Torah. 
we spoke, when we spoke about the three stages of the giving of the Torah, we spoke about the three intellectual sefirot, Chokhmah, Bina, and Dat. They also correspond here very beautifully. The first third, which is all about attaining the goal of the Torah, is more like Chokhmah, which is wisdom. It says in the Zohar, mi nafkat. Torah comes out of wisdom, out of divine wisdom. It's rooted in the divine sefira, emanation of wisdom. The tabernacle is very much like Bina understanding. Bina is all about constructing a mivne, a structure to house the seeds of wisdom. I have a seed of wisdom, but I need to construct uh, a construct of understanding in order to contain it and actualize it in the world. So that's what the tabernacle is all about. And then the final third, uh, the last 18 parashot, correspond to that knowledge. That is all about going, chokhmah uh, and wisdom and understanding, take up, take up one level of the sefirot. That goes one step downwards. It descends. It descends into, again, embodiment and physicality, which is Eretz Israel. And that is lower than the other two sefirot, but its root is higher. That's the basic principle of the sefirot dynamic is you have right and left and then the middle one goes down but it's rooted in the higher in in a higher sefira that is knowledge is rooted in kettle the crown so we're going down into Eretz Israel, but of course we're elevated by going into it right it's going down into physicality but since this is god's will then we are connecting to a higher level we, it's it, we're performing a higher will of god he, he has a will that will be in the desert, but a higher will that will be in Eretz Israel. So going down into Eretz Israel is like descent for the sake of ascent. We're going out into the physical realm in order to uh, to really be connected to a higher level of, of, of serving God. Now, this element of that knowledge, which has to do with human consciousness, not just divine consciousness. So again, wisdom and understanding, the first two thirds are all very something very high and holy. The Torah and the tabernacle, very high and holy. Wisdom and understanding. But that, going down, is Eretz Israel, physicality. And, and this is reflected in something very special that's happening at the very opening of the parsha, the the parsha begins that God is telling Moses, "Shlach lecha anashim." Right? It says, "I want to I want to quote it uh, correctly." So it says, "Shlach lecha anashim vayaturu et eret knan." Send to you or send on to you, or, uh, so it's hard to translate, but the literal translation is send to you people, again, and the word people means people of high stature, to tour the land. The expression touring the land, it's coming from the Hebrew, latur. And now this expression, send to you, is weird in Hebrew also. It should have just said, shlach anashim. Send people. Why does it say send to you? Shlach lecha. It's a unique expression. And whenever there's a unique expression, we we have so many commandments, they never said, do do this to you. And it doesn't mean to you, you you don't send them to yourself. It sort of means, uh, you know, like, in modern Hebrew, it's something like, go ahead and do it. And, And so Rashi says, what is the meaning of this? expression, shlach lecha, it means it's up to you if you send them or not. It's not an obligation. It's not a commandment. It's an option. It's a heiter. Heiter is a permission. The word latur, to tour the land, is very, very closely connected linguistically to the word heiter, which means permission. It's permissible to send 
spies if you want. If you don't, don't send them. If you do, send them. Now this is very unique and it hasn't happened before. God has given many commandments, positive commandments, things you must do, and negative commandments, things you mustn't do. He, there are very few instances in the Torah, in the written Torah, that it says just what the, that God is going out of His way to mention what's allowed. There are many things that are in this category of being just permissible. You don't have to do them, you, but they're not forbidden either. This is the middle realm, the middle uh, space between what you have to do, what you mustn't do, there's what you can do. But to find such an expression, send unto you, or send according to your own judgment, is something very special that's happening here. If you want, do it. If you don't want, don't do it. It's a kind of recommendation, but it's not exactly a recommendation, it's just spelling out the option. And when Rashi is explaining this, how does, it, how does he say? He says, Shlach lecha. Right? These are the words that he wants to explain. And then Rashi says, Le da atcha. According to your dat, your knowledge or judgment or opinion. In, in one of the expressions in Hebrew is shikul dat. Shikul dat is your, your decision. Be careful, to, to think about it and make a decision. And, uh, and work according to it. So what's going on here? Why suddenly do we have this new kind of vibe, new kind of tune? The, 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 the tune that opens the 37th portion, which is the first portion of the final 18, which is all about achieving the third goal, Eretz Yisrael. Why does it start in such a such a, a, a style that says, you don't have to do this, you can't do this. Think, think, now it's, you have to make up your own mind. So A, it's just beautiful that it corresponds to that, right? Because we said that the first 18 parashot is wisdom, chokhmah, and then the third, the second third is all about bina, and the third is all about that, so it starts with that. The previous parasha also started, the first Rashi also mentioned that, if you if you watched or listened to the class that I recorded last week for Baalotcha, I spoke about Aharon's chulshatadat, his weakening of the mind, his disheartening over not uh, giving a, a sacrifice in the inauguration of the tabernacle. But that was negative. Now it's positive, and it has to do with Moshe's dat, and it's just giving him this permission to... Uh, to decide if he wants to send the, send them or not, send the spies or not. So the reason for this new, for this change of tune, this change of style, is that this is very, very inherent to the third goal. The third goal is very different from the first two goals. The first two goals are all about the divine coming down to earth and revealing itself and wanting us to uh, to uh, recognize it and experience it. The Torah is mamish, God's, God putting himself into words and giving the Torah. That's the first goal. The building of the tabernacle, we're more involved with that. It starts with the parashat Truma, which is our own contribution. We're more involved, house of meeting, tent of meeting, means that we are now a bit of a, a bit more active we're partners in uh, we weren't partners in writing the torah the torah was just written came all the it's totally top down the tabernacle is a combination of top down and bottom up because all the instructions are given top down but we're the ones raising up the contribution and actually building the tabernacle and giving the sacrifices so it's a dialogue, it's a combination of top-down, divine top-down, and human, mundane, bottom-up. But the third goal is totally bottom-up. The third goal is all about, Eretz Israel means that God is giving the earthly realm much more autonomy than he did before. That's the whole point of moving from wisdom and understanding to that 
to knowledge. Knowledge is our own knowledge, our own consciousness, our own decision-making. And now God wants us to perform the commandments. Again, we're not entering the land of Israel during this 18 parashot. We're not going to enter the land of Israel in the Torah at all. It only happens in Yeshua, which is the, the book, the first book of the, of the prophets. But we're leading up to that. And we're now arriving at the border of Eretz Israel. And then we're just going to circle for 38 years until the generations pass. It's all around the the all around Eretz Israel. So once we enter the aura of Eretz Israel, the reins are loosened. And God's presence is made is made less demanding in a way. It gives us room to choose. It gives Moses room to choose to send spies or not. It gives room for the spies also to make their mistake and to sin and to, and to, and to bear the price, bear the punishment. That's the punishment of the 40 years. It's risky. It's costly. But it's worth it because that's the whole point of serving God. We're not supposed to do it in the desert. If it was just a question of Torah and tabernacle, then we would have remained in the desert. But that's not what the Torah is all about. The Torah is about entering Eretz Israel, And then it becomes risky. So God is giving us suddenly this option. So this is very, very deep. Now, this relationship, two-thirds, one-third, this sort of ratio is very, very deep in the Torah. There is an expression, a very important expression by, by one of the greatest, most enigmatic, sometimes a little bit crazy, Kabbalist, medieval Kabbalist called Rabbi Abraham Abulafia. And he had this expression called a hole and a half. It's mentioned in our classes quite often. A hole and a half. A hole and a half means it's a very, very abstract, wide term. It has a lot of... We can see it in many, many places. But basically it says, it means that wholeness is not what you think. Wholeness, true wholeness, is a whole and a half. One aspect of wholeness is wholeness. Perfection, feeling of things being rounded up, things being fulfilled, things being full, Shalem, the Hebrew word is Shalem, has to do with Shlemut, with wholeness and perfection, something that's well-rounded and, and balanced, and it's all there. But that's, in a way, too perfect. There's something annoyingly balanced about just perfection and wholeness, and, you know, when everything is so perfect. A perfect picture is a boring picture. What makes pictures interesting are the asymmetry, the flaws, the spaces, the things you don't see, the things that give you a sense of unease. The sense of unease is the second element of true wholeness, which is the element of the half. The half means the imperfect, the unfulfilled, the unbalanced. I always jokingly say that many people who are attracted to Oriental religions, they really like the yin-yang symbol. And then they feel it's so deeply spiritual and it, it conveys something so deep with the black and the white and the black dot with the white uh, paisley and the white dot and the black paisley. And, and, and it is beautiful, no question about it, but there's something annoyingly symmetrical and balanced about it. If you're sensitive to let's say, let's call it Jewish spirituality. And so I would say, the clo if you want to get a little bit closer from the yin-yang to Judaism, then you have to, well, it's not a, it's not a, Jew it's not a holy Jewish symbol anyway. But if, if that's where you are, is that you really love the symbol, then if you want to be, get a little bit of understanding from that place about what Judaism is, then you should draw before you a yin-yang, and the next to it, just one yin and then you have a hole and a half, a little bit, something resembling a hole and a half. 
uh, because the second yin, which is lonely and 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 it's asymmetrical and it's unbalanced and it doesn't have the second half and it's craving something and and it doesn't have what it's craving and it, and, and it's o- an open question what exactly it's craving and there's something about this together that gives a little bit a tiny little bit of sense of what abulafia meant by a hole in the half and you can see this in many places in the torah the structure of the tabernacle is a hole in the half the holy of holies is a square but then the holy the the actual the kodashim the chala kodashim the 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 room before you enter the holy of holies is exactly twice the, that size and also in gematria numerical values you see it in many places and the most perfect example is the when we say Shema Yisrael, the final two words are Hashem Echad, right? That's the the final declaration of our faith in the one God, Hashem Echad. What is the numerical value of God's four-letter word, four-letter name, Hashem? It's 26. What is the numerical value of Echad, the word Echad? It's 13. So Hashem Echad is a whole and a half, 26 and 13. God, God's name, that's perfect. That's very whole. Hold and holy. It's 26. But then when you say the one, and the, and the oneness of the one is supposed to make it even more perfect. And it does. But there's something about the word one, the numerical value is 13. There's something about one, which is, he's one, so he wants another one, which is us. And we are one, and we want him to be the other one for us. One is also evokes loneliness. When you think about the word one, we don't want to be one, we want to be two. We want to find our, our mate, our spouse. And the same goes for the Jewish people and humankind in general and, and God. So Hashem, so Hashem Echad is a whole and a half. And if you want to go deeper, it's even present in the first two letters of God's name, Yud and He, same numerical ratio. Yud and He is 10 and 5. Again, a whole and a half. 10 and 5, and the final two letters of Echad, same thing. Chet and Dalid is 8 and 4, same ratio, same relationship. So, and it, it's in, in many, many places. And now we see it also in the division of the Torah into three parts. The first two parts, which are all about, uh, as we said, revelation, top-down revelation, or a combination of top-down and bottom-up, but it still has to do with top-down. This is the first two-thirds. This is the whole. The first two-thirds of the Torah, the first 36 parashot, are about the wholeness aspect of the Torah. The Torah is very perfect. The tabernacle is very perfect. It's all perfect, and it's all ideal. It's in the realm of the ideal, not of the real. But the final third is the realm of the real and the realm of the partial and the realm of the broken and the realm of the physical. So now going into, now we're given room to send spies and room to sin and make a mistake and then to believe them or not to believe them and and this is part of the of this halfness. The halfness is that God is taking one step backwards, giving us freedom, and freedom comes along with the option, the possibility of sinning. And that's what the first Rashi is all about. It's all about the possibility of sinning. Now let's try to connect all of this to the topic that I mentioned in the beginning, which is Na'asev Nishma, we shall do and we shall hear. The Rubavitcher Rebbe says that when we were given the Torah, we said, we shall do and we shall hear. We accepted the yoke of heaven, the yoke of the commandments, and we said we don't fully understand it, but it's God's words, we heard them on Mount Sinai, so we're taking it upon us. This is very much a top-down experience, because we're putting our own hearing our own identification, our own sense of, yeah, I get this, and it works, and it makes sense. We're, we're putting it aside. We're postponing it 
in order to do God's words. Na'ase means God's commandment comes before my own sense of understanding and identification. I put myself second and I put God first. But ultimately, the whole purpose of Na'aseh v'nishma is that we'll hear, right? It's Na'aseh v'az nishma. We shall do and then we shall hear. We shall do and thereby we shall hear. So, it's time to get to the, at some point, it's time to move on to the hearing part. And this is what is happening now. The transition from the first two-thirds to the last third, the Rebbe didn't speak about this division into uh, two, uh, three-thirds. That, as I said, was is Rebbe Ginsburg's chidush. It's a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a novel idea from Rebbe Ginsburg. But, but the Rebbe is saying that from this parasha onwards, because we're now getting close to Eretz Israel, we're in the aura of Eretz Israel, then the element of hearing is now coming into play. God wants us to hear the truth of the Torah. So it goes beautifully together. As, the fi- as, as we're coming out of the, f- the first two-thirds of the Torah, which are all about God's will uh, and God's vision coming before us, then we said, Naseh. And now we're moving towards Venishma. So Venishma, what is the Venishma here? What is we shall hear? So the Rebbe says, now he's giving us the option to send spies to get an empirical impression, a first-hand uh, impression of Eretz Israel, and see for ourselves if what we think about it, how it looks to us, if it's conquerable or not, in our own senses, it needs to make sense to us. We could have just said, he could have just said, trust me, Eretz Israel is conquerable, don't send spies, it's forbidden to send spies, or just not even mention the option. He could have just, he could have said two things, he could have, God, could have remained silent about it. Just now, okay, you're now go ahead and enter it. Or he could have said, in order to make sure that we don't send spies and thereby complicate ourselves with with listening to them and, and hearing their false impressions and and their false, you know, um, uh, conclusions about what they saw, he could have said, don't send spies. <laughs> he didn't do this. He says, I want you to see for yourself, hear for yourself, get your own impression, because now we're moving from Naaseh to Nishma, from the Torah as a top-down experience to living the Torah as a bottom-up experience. And in order to have a bottom-up experience is you need to have your own judgment, your own autonomy. So he's loosening the reins. And it says, so then the Rebbe says, it has to be an option and not an obligation. So now we could say now, so why make it an option? Make it an obligation. If it's so important to move to the element of hearing, which is our own judgment, our own accepting of the Torah, our own seeing for ourselves, then give Moses a commandment to send spies. If it's so important, this is what the whole Torah is all about, is that we move from from doing blindly um, to uh, to seeing for ourselves, make it an obligation. No, says the Rebbe. If, if it were an obligation, it would contradict the whole point. The whole point is that it's it, it has to come from us. So he's giving, he's just saying, Shlach lecha, send on to you. Make your own decision. And Moses is making his decision. And then the spies go in, and they do get an, an, an impression of the land. And they do make their own judgment. They make a, a, a false judgment. They make a mistake. They see what the land is all about. They see the risks. But, and now we're getting to the deepest part. But they're sort of detaching the nishma from the na'aseh, the hearing from the, from the doing. Doing means following God's words accepting God's words without understanding. They need to connect the two. There has to be a bridge between the first two-thirds, the Torah as it's coming from heavens and we accept it 
uh, you know, we bow down before it without presuming to understand it. There has to be a connection, a bridge built between this part of the Torah and the final third part of the Torah, which is our own freedom to judge for ourselves and see what we make of it. So the idea is this. The idea is that as they're coming into the land of Israel, they need to have opened their own senses, look through their own eyes, listen with their own ears. But then they rush to being so much, having so much faith in their own judgment, in their own senses, in what they saw and heard, and their own impressions, that they forget about God's promise, that the, the land is conquerable, that we can conquer it, that we're going to inherit it. They just forget all about it. And they arrive at a place that they, they forget God's words. And they disbelieve God. Now, the idea is, and this is the final message for this class, is that as we're nearing redemption, and as we're getting close to Eretz Israel in the full sense of the word, Eretz Israel is redemption, whole, is full, completely fulfilling God's message and God's um, vision, the more we are given autonomy. But this autonomy comes with a big risk, and with a big challenge that we have to be careful about. The whole modern age is all about autonomy. Everything about the modern age, about the modern worldview, about modernity, it's all about autonomy. It's about the Enlightenment and science and art. It's all about we're going democracy. It's all about our own autonomy. And this, in many ways, is part of the process of redemption. And there's something very high about it, very holy about it, but there's also a big, big risk and danger. Now, we'll say this in the Hasidic way, which is the most, the most powerful way of, of how it was stated. Uh, one of the greatest Chabad scholars and teachers, not one of the Rebbes, but one of the greatest interpreters of the Rebbes, and, and a, in, a way, in a way, a, a very original um, uh, innovator of Hasidut in his own right, without being an actual Rebbe, was Reb Isaac of Homel. Reb Isaac of Homel is, he was a chosid of the first two, three rebbes of Chabad. He was very young when he was a chosid of the first one. He was very old when he was a chosid of the third one. But his life encompassed three generations of Chabad. And he remained a chosid. It was even a question at some point, maybe he will become the third rebbe. It was actually on the table at some point. Rabbi Isaac of Homel said something extremely revolutionary. It's well known that there will never be a second giving of the Torah. The Torah is eternal, it's final, no new second Torah will be given, and there won't be a second giving of the Torah. But he played on this, and he said, and it's a, it's a major element in Hasidut, the sages themselves say something very enigmatic. They say, that there shall in the future be a new Torah. How do we reconcile this promise of, of a new Torah with the basic tenet that there, there will never be a second Torah? The explanation is that the revelation of the inner dimension of the Torah, of Pnimiyuta Torah, of the level of the esoteric level of the Torah, this will be a kind of new giving of the Torah, and this will be the new Torah. It won't be a completely new Torah. It'll be the hidden dimension of the Torah being revealed. We'll experience it like another giving of the Torah. A new, like a new Torah is giving. Because it'll shed new light on everything we thought we knew. Every verse, every commandment, every story that we thought we understood. If you then learn about it from a Hasidic perspective, it's, it's turned upside down completely. And it, it's like a new Torah. So then came Rabbi Isaac of Homil and said the following revolutionary idea. He said, in the first giving of the Torah, which is the Torah, the revealed levels of the Torah, we said, first we shall do, we shall uh, serve blindly or without understanding. 
and then we shall hear. But when the second, in the second spiritual giving of the Torah, the revelation of the inner dimension, it'll be nishma v'naase. First we shall hear, then we shall do. So said Rabbi Isaac of Hamel. Very, very revolutionary statement. It sounds the very opposite of Judaism. It sounds the most dangerous thing in the world. Because first we shall hear and then we shall do seems to say that only once you identify and hear and understand uh, elements in the Torah will you then observe them. So then what happens if you say, well, I do see the truth and beauty of uh, Shabbat, but I don't see the truth and beauty of Kashrut. So I'm going to observe Shabbat and not Kashrut, right? So that every person would say, no, 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 they never say that. That's a, uh, and they would even say, those words, that sentence uttered by or written by Rabbi Isaac of Homil, is exactly why the Misnagdim, those against Hasidic, they, that's what they were all about. They were afraid it's going to be a new form of Shabtaut, like Shabtai Tzvi. It's going to be, whatever, do whatever you want, do whatever you feel like. It's going to be like a new age religion, the religion of me. So, of course, that's not what Rabbi Isaac of Homil meant. He meant that in the, once you start learning the inner dimension of the Torah, Pnimiyuta Torah, Kabbalah and Chasidut, you arrive at performing the mitzvot coming out of a very deep hearing, a very deep understanding of what they're all about. He never meant to erase or replace the first basic idiom, which is a verse, we shall do and we shall understand. His saying that there will be a level of first hearing, then understanding, is based upon, it's building upon the basic level of we shall do and then we shall hear. We shall perform and then we shall understand. It's, it goes without saying, and in fact he does say it, just to be sure, that of course we're not erasing one letter from the Shulchan Aruch, and we're not erasing one letter from the Torah, and the Na'asev Nishma principle is absolutely there. But I am saying that once you get to the hearing, and you get to a very deep hearing of the Torah, you arrive at performing the mitzvot in a totally different way, and it's as if it's coming absolutely voluntarily out of you. That's what he said. And this is very much connected to the goal of Hasidut, which is the goal of the Torah itself, which is the goal of the final third of the Torah, of coming to Eretz Yisrael. Coming to Eretz Yisrael is arriving at a place in which we are given autonomy and space and permission just like many people today, now really everything is permissible. Not that everything is permissible in terms of what God is saying. It's just that's the world, that's the way the world is. If someone wants to stop observing the commandments, he has, you know, the internet is open, the world is open, it's a free country, all, all countries that we're surrounded by are free countries. You know, we don't live under communism. Do whatever you want. You have this freedom, shlach lecha, or don't shlach lecha. Hear, listen to the spies, or listen to God. You have every option in the world. But this is, and, and, and indeed, many people are not observant. So it's, it's, it's dangerous, and it's costly. But it's worth it. Because it enables this awakening of this movement of arriving at the performing of the mitzvot through Given, given the space to hear or not hear or partially hear. And, of course, it's not that we have to, God forbid, distance ourselves from the mitzvot and from the Torah and then come back to it. We don't need to. And the whole point is that we want to fulfill and experience the wholeness of the Torah, that is, the wholeness, that's including the whole and the half, so, but there's a difference between the wholeness and the halfness of the Torah. The wholeness is do it without understanding. That's the regular classical Judaism. 
You don't have to understand it. You don't have to identify. You just have to do it. That's how it is. That's how Judaism works. You don't have. You don't wait till you understand. First you do, and then you maybe understand, and so on. But then the other element is the halfness. The halfness means, well, well. What do you What do you think? What do you say? What do you feel? Does it resonate? It doesn't yet resonate. Maybe you should learn it a bit more deeply, out of a sense of ease. Out of a sense of having given, given, being given space, space to make mistakes, space to search, and space to wonder, space to ask questions. That's the halfness. That's the shlachlecha. And just so that we understand the depth of the of Rabbi Isaac's words, the way it's explained, this reversal of the the future inner Torah. The Torah of Redemption is all about first hearing, then performing, first understanding, and then then doing. Is that the idea is that we know that this in Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, it says, you shouldn't don't be like servants who serve God in order to get a reward. You should be like servants who serve God, uh, not for the sake of receiving a reward. That's a basic f- phrase in Pirkei Avot. So that's beings like servants who serve God not for the sake of receiving a reward. That's like Nasevenishma. I, I don't want my reward. I want to do what God wants me to do. What is Nishma Venase? There, there was once another version for uh, this part of Ethics of the Fathers. And that went you should be like servants who serve God. So our own phrasing, the one we have in our own books now, is not for the sake of a reward. But this lost version is for the sake of not receiving a reward. You should serve God for the sake of not receiving any reward. Not that you don't care about it, it's that you don't want a reward. So this is associated with I shall hear and then I shall understand. It means that I I so I love the Torah so much, I love the commandments, I hear them in my heart so much that I I even it's I don't want any reward. It'll only ruin my infatuation. It'll ruin the beauty of me performing the mitzvot. Don't give me any presents. It's not that I don't care, it's that I don't want any presents. Why? Because I hear it, I love it, I identify with with it so much. So, th- this is my final word now. Is that if you want, there's something very basic about what Hasidut is all about. Hasidut, at one and the same time, loose, is loosening the reins. It's all about Eretz Yisrael, it's all about Shlach Lecha, it's all about experiencing the mitzvot as something that gives you space. It's It's relieving the tension the pressure of, of doing everything because God says so and you have to do it and you don't have to understand it. It's all about understanding and hearing and identifying and experiencing and fun and, and understanding the hidden levels of the Torah. So that's on the one hand, it's loosening. On the other hand, it's raising the standards. It's raising the standards of you, we should be like slaves that don't want any presence and we should fully connect the nishma to the naaseh. From the nishma, we want to get all the way to the naaseh, to the actual performing of the mitzvot, with the obligation to all the details of the mitzvot. We want to have. We want to. It's not that we're saying, "Well, I'll hear it and I'll consider it, and if one mitzvah I don't like it so much, I won't do it." No, it's that we want to use this kind of hearing or identifying or appreciate inner appreciation and identification in order to go all the way with all the little details of the of the Jewish law. We want to get from Nishma to Naaseh, to all the Maasim, all the acts, all the little actions of Judaism. But in a way that I it comes from this deep, deep understanding, which is what Hasidus learning is, is giving us, of how every letter here and every detail is God's word. So this is our uh our class for this week's parsha. We want. We are now arriving at the 
at the border of Eretz Yisrael. We are one step away from Eretz Yisrael. Sometimes it's, it's a long process. You get stuck just as you get to the opening. You get pushed back. But it's all part of this trial and error, this experience of being, uh, being given the freedom to make mistakes so that we, when we do finally re-choose the right path, we do it from a deeper, more autonomous, more connected way. And, and we experience the Torah in all its wholeness and halfness with its perfect divinity and also with, it, with its imperfect humanity. Hi, if you enjoyed this class, please click the like button and subscribe to the channel. On YouTube, also make sure to click the bell icon. To keep the classes flowing and free of charge, please consider supporting us on Patreon, an amazing platform for supporting independent creators. You're also welcome to join our weekly live Zoom class every Sunday evening, Israel time. You can find all the links in the description below. Thank you very much, keep healthy, and see you soon.